0: Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner and Alexander Lashley. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Freud, addiction and substance misuse disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to support the podcast, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making this show. However, if you can't, then please just tell your friends about us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social. Social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, and YouTube. Today's guest is Brett Scott, author of Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. Brett is an economic anthropologist and former financial broker exploring the politics of money systems, finance, and digital technology. In this episode, we discuss why a cashless future is a trap, how automated money systems control those on welfare, the lie of tech increasing leisure time, why crypto is a speculative carnival, and much, much more.
1: In the mental health field too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by
0: 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can't
1: have a profit the mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
0: There's a quote or a paraphrase of something from your book, cash is a tool of capitalism that ironically is preventing its further expansion. If that's not too, this isn't too much of a big enough question, could you sort of elaborate on that? Why does corporate capitalism desperately want us to dispense with physical cash? And, or if that's too big a question, perhaps we could start with what are the benefits of physical cash that perhaps we're sort of taking for granted and we're not necessarily Luddites to demand that physical cash sticks around.
2: Maybe the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, capitalist systems go through multiple phases and they're almost like, you can almost imagine a sort of a capitalist system as being, you know, I, you sometimes can imagine like a like a snake that sheds its skin and gets bigger, you know, and kind of um, at any one point in a capitalist system, there's always going to be a kind of... Um, one thing that used to be on the leading edge of it, which is now being seen as slowing it down in some kind of way, right? So in many ways, the cash system right now is like that in our monetary system. So if you think about, you know, the 1800s, 1700s, times like, you know, back in time, there there was a point in time when the cash system, uh, in other words, the physical units of state-issued money, um would have been at the leading edge of a capitalist system. It would, it would have been, um, you know, for example, during colonialism, you know, we had people coming in demanding taxation and physical cash and stuff. It would have been a way to extend the power of capitalist markets. But fast forward to our modern time right now, and in the current moment of global capitalism, cash really is something that actually the corporate sector perceives as slowing it down and and slowing its expansion and preventing it from automating. So, ideologically, the tables have turned against the cash system, even though many ordinary people still value the cash system a lot, right? So, there's a lot of this anti-cash rhetoric, um, which is basically coming out of the banking sector, big payments companies, big tech, a lot of the sort of you know, big corporates uh, who basically love to automate stuff, right? So interestingly, in the current moment of modern kind of corporate surveillance capitalism, cash actually has a sort of strangely anti-capitalist element to it, right? In the sense that it's actually becoming a a kind of bastion against total corporate takeover, right? So this is why it's got quite an interesting and ambiguous position. And also historically, if you're thinking about you know, who uses cash the most is often people on the on the margins of capitalist systems, right? So it's it's your often people in the lowest socioeconomic classes, people who are working for sort of wages on a daily basis, whereas the sort of the digital bank systems or the, the bank transfer systems, which is what the digital systems are, have historically been associated with richer people, with salaried workers and so on. Um, and in many ways, what we're seeing right now is the, you know, a lot of the kind of the banking sector and the tech sector is trying to extend that into um, parts of the economy that previously were kind of resistant to that, you know, sort of the bank transfer systems. And they kind of present this as being what's called financial inclusion, but really it's a kind of
0: enclosure process. So I can elaborate on (laughs) that. Good. Uh, The enclosure thing's really interesting. Uh, You talked about Uh, banks are obviously closing down branches sort of locally, but also with trying to close down ATMs as well. And that the ATM is like the place where you can exit the casino, where if you want to leave the banking sector, you can, you have that option to cash out. And you make this really great point about just that uh, how money has come to be such an integral part of our lives. And often uh, in this podcast, there's been mention of Um, particularly in you know mental health things this idea of domination and submission but also how that happens in the capitalist system but the the idea of um dependence that like you know money is this invention or this tool that we are now completely dependent on and who controls that money then obviously oh yeah yeah has a huge amount of control
2: you know people who um kind of like money geeks but like me you know um so when, when somebody says capitalism to me, um, I basically think of monetary systems. Right. And, I, and I just, I'm, I'm at risk of generalizing here. But a lot of sort of, let's say, more old school Marxist thinkers would historically sort of imagine, you know, even, even really like people like Marx, there's, there's, there's a discussion about capitalism and then there's almost a separate discussion about money. Right? Mm-hmm. but but to me, these these are the same things, right? Uh, a capitalist system de facto is based upon monetary systems, right? There is no such thing as capitalist systems without monetary systems. And actually the, there's a lot of argument to say that the extension of monetary systems is what creates capitalist systems, all right. Um, and this is partially because I come from an economic anthropology background where you sort of looking at, Pre-capitalist societies who often have very, very different ways of doing exchange and often not using monetary systems at all. Um, so, in many ways, if you're thinking about what it means to be a person in a modern capitalist society, it's basically a person who um, has no option but to exchange via monetary systems, right? And this is where all the forms of alienation yes. and stuff stuff come out, right? Um, but and, and and you can just we can you can talk generically about the monetary system. All right. And it's sort of entirety, but actually, and and that's important. And I do do that in the book, sort of of talking about the monetary system. I use this kind of metaphor of of it's like a nervous system, right? Um, Which I can discuss, but also within that, there's a whole bunch of different players in the monetary system, right? So our modern monetary system underpins capitalism, but it has these different Players within it, most notably the state and the commercial banking sector, all right, who run different parts of that system. And a lot of a lot of the debates that that are that I'm involved in, in terms of say what's called cashless society, is about where the relative power in the monetary system lies. Does it lie more with the state or does it lie more with the banking sector? All right, because right now the state part. Of the monetary system is the cash system. It's the physical cash system for us. Whereas the bank controlled part is the digital system. So the debate around, do you want to protect the cash system is really about, do you want to protect the public money system relative to the privatized monetary system?
1: Would you go elaborate on that and also weave in credit cards, yes. which are in many cases digitized but are a central dependence for most americans
2: yeah sure i mean probably the best um metaphor to work with for anybody who's trying to think about this this politics of money stuff is one of the biggest psychological problems i come across with um when people are so sort of maybe mental models that people have when they're approaching monetary systems is that they often imagine uh that the us dollar for example is a single currency and they, and this is this, this kind of like um, one type of money illusion, and people basically think that that a, a dollar bill is basically the same as dollars you see in your bank account. Just it's like the same thing implemented in a different way. You know, a bit like the difference between a an old piano, it's physical, and a sort of an electric piano. You know, they just, you sort of think well, what, they're, they're basically the same thing, and they're just like in different forms. But in reality, they're not the same thing at all. All right, the dollar system, believe it or not, has at least 5,000 issuers of the dollar. So the two main issuers are the Federal Reserve and the Treasury in the U.S., which which issues the cash, right? The banking sector actually operates an entirely separate se- second uh, sector. And, and, and this, the metaphor to think about with this is to think about a casino, right? So if I walk into a casino with a $100 bill and I hand it over to the cashier and they push out chips to me, Those chips that I've been given in the casino are a secondary type of money issued by a casino, right? But they tied back to that first type of money. The reason I believe in that chip is I believe I can take it back to the casino cashier and demand cash back, right? And actually, bank accounts are very similar to this. When I go and hand cash to a bank, what they're basically doing is they're issuing out to me digital chips. And so the entire bank payment system, when you're using any cards and stuff, is basically you're, you're in the process of moving around these bank-issued digital chips, okay? And so what's called cashless society is basically the situation, you can almost imagine if we're using the casino metaphor, like where a kind of conglomeration of casinos refuse to let you exit their systems, right? They refuse to let you take those chips back and... um Mm-hmm. exit right and that's what the politics of cash to society are all about right which is um do you want to let that happen and that's what my book is, is, is looking at power dynamics of
0: that process it's a brilliant metaphor as well and it sort of carries across um you know there's just some great uh, ways you have of explaining various sort of things uh, as you go on the sort of adventure and the narrative of the book you sort of you identified like three main problems Um, you know, with this sort of cashless idea, surveillance, censorship, and power. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about any of those kind of things. I mean, I guess actually I should just jump back. One of the things that was really interesting, kind of funny, uh, was there was a, you had a report there where Visa had said, yeah, actually people spend more money.
2: Well, One of the first things I'll say, okay, before maybe going to the implications of cashless society, is just thinking about that metaphor I was just using about the, you know, cash cash versus casino chips, right? Or like digital casino chips which are issued up up, up by the banking sector. One of the big things in the politics of money, right, is the fact that the banking sector, unlike a casino, has this ability to issue out far more of these chips than they have in reserves, essentially. This is what's sometimes called fractional reserve banking. Well, it's bank creation of money, right? They're able to Mm -hmm. issue out way more of these chips than they actually have um, in terms of like, you know, quote unquote, behind the counter as it were, all right? So, and this is a big, big topic in monetary politics. And it's also a very big topic in terms of just the, let's talk about even like mental health or the fact that when capitalist systems are exuberant, right? When there's like the sort of corporate exuberance, the the, the banking sector is creating lots of money by pushing out loans essentially, right? And this is a kind of like an exuberance within the system, but that often has a kind of a correlation with huge amounts of burnout with people, right? So there's these all these dynamics going on in the monetary system. But if we, if we just park that to the side for for a bit, the basic point for the cashless society debates that we have these two forms of money. We have state-issued physical money and then bank-issued digital money, okay? And then there's this battle between them. And often what I'm arguing for is a balance of power between those two players, right? So I'm not arguing that everybody should constantly be using cash. I'm arguing that we should have to maintain a balance of power between them. And, And the metaphor that I will often use for this is to talk about cash being like the public bicycle of payments, whereas the digital systems and but when I say digital systems, I mean the mainstream digital systems. You know, Wells Fargo, you know, um, Bank of America, Barclays Bank in the UK, and stuff. These these are the main these are the ones who run the actual major digital money systems. They're very much like the private Uber of of payments. So this sort of automated taxi app. If, if we if we're using this like transport metaphor, and if you're running a transport system you would maintain a balance of power between different types of transport, right? At least, at least ideally, you'd want to have bicycle lanes, you might allow these you know, Uber apps to, to exist and so on. Um, but you would never want a situation, for example, where a company like Uber controlled the entire transport system. Imagine a situation in which the only way you were able to travel is if Uber agreed via its app to let you travel. Right, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about you know a cashless society, in a sense. You're saying the only way you'll be able to interact is if the essentially big finance and big tech allows you to interact with somebody else, right? Um, because right now the cash system is the one system that bypasses that. You don't need to be asking permission to hand over a banknote to somebody in a store, right? It's a public system, it's like the public bicycle, all right? It's like something I have some. Personal control over, whereas any digital transaction relies upon me asking all these third party players to do it for me. All right. And now people might superficially perceive that as convenient, but if that is allowed to take over completely, a huge number of implications emerge. And you can immediately, the implications are mass surveillance, all right, the ability to watch everything. There's also Huge potential for forms of censorship, the ability to control people through payments. All right. There's also massive resilience problems that emerge in a system like that. So going back to the, to the transport metaphor, imagine if a company like Uber actually did control your whole transport system, but then suddenly their server goes down and nobody can move. All right. That's a little bit like if your entire system's dependent on Visa and MasterCard and they go down, then the entire economy just basically stops. There's also huge exclusion problems in the sense that many people either can't get access to those systems or actually don't want to have access to those systems. And then it's just a a big political problem about the centralization of power that happens in that situation. So the argument for the protection of cash is really about keeping a counterpower to that total domination of those those digital big tech, big finance systems, right? Um, And... That's, yeah, that's essentially the sort of like broad level uh, description. But the one thing I, I, you, you mentioned there was about how, you know, one of the big things that's going on is that people spend a lot more with these digital systems, right? There's a lot of research to show that people spend, spend up to 40% more with digital systems than they do with cash, which is why within a capitalist system, of course, there's a huge push, and from the corporate sector, because I know people spend lots more, players like Visa actively market this. They, they will go to companies and they say, if you go cashless, if you prevent people from using cash, they will just start spending a lot more. And that's, of course, a big thing within a capitalist system that's constantly seeking growth, is it has to try to accelerate this stuff all the time, which is why ideologically digital payments are seen as the, the obvious desirable future.
0: Yeah. And th- there's a really sort of uh, profound example as well. Um, besides these uh, private companies um, exercising uh, power with this digital infrastructure, the Australian welfare card you mentioned, um, that blew my mind. I hadn't heard about that. that um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that or I can. Sure. I mean, the Australian welfare
2: card's actually been scrapped. Um, because of people pushing back against it. But what that basically was, was a, a, an attempt to use digital payment systems to essentially control welfare recipients. All right, because bear in mind, welfare recipients are often the most marginalized people in society and they often have the least political power and obviously then become testing grounds for um, this kind of stuff. There's actually a, a scholar called N- Natalie Maronko who um, has been studying basically this. And she shared a great article, which is called First, they come for the poor, which is basically how surveillance technologies often get first tested on poorer poorer people, right? And this is the same with these types of um, payment surveillance systems. So the Australian cashless welfare card, it was called, is basically a way to, rather than handing out ordinary money to, to welfare recipients, they would give them this card which would prevent them from spending the money in, for example, like a local shop that might sell them you know, alcohol, rather they had to go to some big retailer, all right? So it was a whole way essentially of, of centralizing welfare spending into these big corporates, all right? Because the only way you can spend your welfare is to go to like a big, big supermarket, right? That will be part of the program, but you're not allowed to spend it somewhere else. Um, and it was preventing them from, from buying alcohol or cigarettes or anything like this, and also preventing them from 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 withdrawing cash because, this idea that cash can be used for whatever you want it to be used for, right? So this very paternalistic kind of system, but there's a huge pushback against it, not only because of the paternalism, but also because of the fact that it was essentially anti-small business. So it's basically saying the only, you're only allowed to spend welfare money in, in big, like, corporates.
3: Yeah, that's the that's, um, American uh, welfare has gone to through to the way of... Um, you know, electronic payments pretty much fully.
2: Yeah, but part of the question is that, you know, one of the dynamics that happens, especially in lower income communities, is that people might get paid, for example, they might have a bank transfer made to a, to a, to a bank that they, so that's a digital payment, but they will often withdraw that in the form of cash. Going back to my metaphor, they will take the digital chips and they'll redeem them back for, for, the, for, the, for the original cash, right? And there's a bunch of reasons. There's lots of research into why lower socioeconomic groups will often prefer cash, right? One of the main ones is it's much easier to budget with.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, and it's a lot more intuitive for many people to, to use these, these um, uh, physical systems. And, you know, the flip side, of course, is people spend a lot more with digital money, right? And there's a lot of research to show that, which is linked to indebtedness, Mm-hmm. So uh, people who have an in- intuition about budgeting know often you should have this sort of more friction uh, like higher friction with with your payments right and that's important right. to keep that but of course in, a, in, a, in a, a system that's always trying to accelerate and grow friction is antithetical to that it, it, like this this is why I sort of it's so it's very very hard for me for example I, I, I'm going out and sort of doing stuff like promoting cash. But the ideological kind of like force field you hit is is, is people just having, not being able to conceptualize the idea that you might slow down rather than speed up, right? Right. Even people who who actually like cash do not believe it can can survive in society, right? Because at some level, they understand in their bodies that the system is accelerating all the time. So they, they, at some level, have this kind of like the sense that there's something futile about trying to... Hold on to something that's not accelerating, right? Because they can sort of sense that the structure of the economy is like that.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, we did this uh, one episode, The Memeing of Mark Fisher, the the guy who wrote that, and one of the things he was talking about is sort of creative resistance with slow memes and just slowing down and reflecting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of tech solutionism basically has like one gear. There's only like one, there's only like one direction. Um, The only thing that most entrepreneurs can imagine in a system, and this is not to insult entrepreneurs. This is basically just like the only thing you get rewarded for in a large scale system like we have is to essentially find a way to automate something or or have some sort of short term fix for something, right? That you can then then sell, right? You can't sell slowing down really, Um, So for for example, like with the monetary system right now, you'll you'll say something like, okay, we can see that people get into higher levels of indebtedness as they move into these digital systems. So the, and people are having ever more amounts of digital burnout, fragmentation, confusion, disorientation from these digital systems. Right. So it would seem that what a sort of sane person might say is like, well, maybe we should pull back slightly from those systems, but that's, antithetical to any kind of solutionist thinking in an economic system. The only type of thinking you can imagine is, well, let's use the technology to try and help people with the problems that the technology has created, right? So, okay, make an app that's going to sort of like help you to budget, make an app that will help you to sort of manage your time or sort of collate all the fragmented pieces of the internet together, all right? Which, of course, is a sort of like so, but sort of magical thinking that somehow you can sort of use as accelerating technology to kind of like fix itself.
0: Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's my yeah. take. Yeah, uh, and also this, the, you know, another angle on this, which I thought was fascinating, was if everything is monitored, uh, whereas cash obviously, as you said, is sort of offline money, that progressive social change is often tied up in uh, sometimes illegal things.
2: Well there's a lot of this very sort of sanctimonious sort of like rhetoric when it comes to people who are attacking the cash system right so there's there's basically three lines of 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 uh, attack against the cash system um, the first is basically around it being old and, and old and outdated. The second is basically that it's, it is inefficient. right? And the third is that it's dangerous, right? So the inefficiency arguments are basically what I've been talking about here in a, in a, in a system that's trying to accelerate and automate something that's offline and physical is much harder to automate essentially. So this is, this is why it gets called inefficient and, and stuff. Right. Um, But then there's these arguments around it being dangerous, and there's a bunch of categories, which is essentially, you know, cash is used for crime, cash is used for tax evasion, cash is dirty, and all these kind of things, right? Um, And strangely, if you go to left-wing circles, one of the sort of, this is one of the things that I get very frustrated with, is that actually a a lot of lefties have sort of partially bought into this, right? Sort of bought into this idea that, like, if you want to be a good citizen, you should always constantly be submitting yourself to some kind of like scrutiny, um, or constantly submitting yourself to taxation. All right, but this is never this was never originally part of like a lot of forms of left wing politics. Right? There's nothing. There's nothing to say that um, a state is acting in your interests all the time. Right? Maybe it is. Maybe sometimes there are, there are positive things you can do with the state for sure. All right. But the sort of like kind of obsequious behavior is often, people often will say this kind of stuff. It's like, well, you know, but, you know, if you're using the cash system, you're obviously trying to escape taxes, right? It's like, well, do you realize that taxes for a long time were used to essentially extract in favor of a, of a, of a state that basically helps corporations? I mean, like, there's nothing necessarily positive about, about those processes. And actually many times the cash system has been used by people who are screwed by mainstream corporations and the state, all right? And actually, are you trying to use that system to find little ways of existing partially outside of that system? So informal black market economies, if you're a person who's sitting in the center of power, you look at an informal economy and you're like, oh, it's a kind of dirty zone of like deviance." But within black market economies, informal economies, these are like ways of surviving as a sort of person who's marginalized in the society. And it's terrible when I see people... In let's say like left leaning circles where they actually have this whole thing. It's like, well, we should get rid of the cash system and force everybody to use digital bank transfers because it'll help to get rid of the black market economy, which is basically what a lot of, you know, um, migrants and people who who kind of like this marginalized and this society rely upon. Um, right. There's a lot of this kind of thinking that goes on. Um, but yeah, I didn't really answer your question. No, no, i
0: don't know <laughs> no no no, no, no. it's bang on because I, I think in the book you were talking about sort of uh was it in america where you know marijuana started to become legalized um that yeah they, yeah you know. well the,
2: the the points the point i was making in the book is that in a society actually you you often will need these types of gray areas right a lot of progressive social change occurs through things that are technically illegal mm. all right so like homosexual relationships were illegal at one point, right? And in, in my home country of South Africa, interracial relationships, illegal. You know, marijuana, illegal, you know, despite the fact that there's many medical benefits to those kind of things. And actually in those contexts, these, these informal black market economies are where those things survive, all right? And if you try to formalize everything and shut down all forms of black market activity, you're basically also simultaneously trying to curtail any form of deviance that might actually lead to progressive forms of change. Very hard to make this argument in mainstream kind of policy circles, but that's you know I think it's true. Makes sense.
0: Yeah, and and then the scary thing that comes out of that surveillance, uh, the or constant surveillance, that you know the the dream of the sort of fully automated corporate capitalism is just that. Yeah, not only would you potentially be uh, getting categorized in sort of unfair ways that essentially that's already what's happening. Cause I was thinking about clearly all these financial, um, uh, institutions or, or, or tools, if you like, are being used to figure out whether, you know, a tenant's going to be approved to rent a place or to get a yeah. mortgage. And you sort of talk about, you know, how these, this surveillance stuff, like, you know, it's looking at, who your contacts are you know it's yeah, looking at how yeah, you interact yeah, with your screen it, it's uh there's a sort of level of detail to it which is um pretty terrifying
2: yeah absolutely i mean there's um in the book i talk about sort of three maybe archetypes i don't know what the word is but like like um of surveillance there's uh you know the the one that people often think about is big brother they imagine a kind of state that's watching and sort of exerting power and controlling right that's definitely one thing but then there's also a Big Bouncer, all right, which is basically all these companies that essentially will use, will basically spy, a spy on you and watch you in order to decide if you get access to things or not. So in the realm, for example, of what's called financial inclusion, which is a very heavily um, political realm for me, is basically there's a lot of these companies that say, well, what we need to do is give everybody access to credit. All right. But to give them access to credit, you've got to basically spy on them to see how credit-worthy they are. Let's basically pry into their phones to look at like what apps they've downloaded because we can put it through an AI model that will tell us which apps correlate with what kind of credit rating. Or like, you know, there's even apps. That there's there's even these systems that will uh, record how often somebody calls their their, their parents or um, <laughs> when last they updated something. And there's all these models which are basically trying to work out these kind of credit scoring through these very abstract or, or sort of micro level data. But th- these are these kind of like big bouncer systems where, where these big institutions are using this kind of spying as a way to decide upon access or not, right? So I'm thinking about like a bouncer that's saying, you get to come in, you don't get to come in. And then there's the big butler systems, which are basically all these creepy companies that will use your data to try and manipulate you, essentially, And so I think about like a a kind of old butler that sort of sits behind you and says, well, you know, you you should rather do this rather than this. And let me take that away for you and let me curate your world, right? So a lot of these companies, essentially use your data to try and curate what you see and sort of push you down particular paths. And of course, payments data is a huge frontier because it shows a lot of stuff about how a person acts in society and and what their priorities are. So of course, there's a lot of companies who are trying to get payments data. And cash, of course, yields no data. So in the fintech sector or the tech sector more generally, they all hate the cash system because not only can you not automate systems with an offline form of money, but you can't get data and fees from people, essentially.
3: Yeah, that's a, I know that, you know, things going cashless has greatly impacted the service sector. Uh, yeah. One of the major um, things that when you talk to people like bartenders and waitresses and basically people that, you know, make the vast majority of their income through tipping, a lot of people don't trust their employers to give them the full amount of their tips through a cashless system. Yeah, right, yeah. right. and for good reason. And yeah. if you
2: want, if you one of the one of the easiest ways to see the class dynamics of of cashless society, which is a huge aspect of it, is if you just go into many places where there's been an increase in these so-called cashless stores, you'll often see that actually. The owners won't take cash, but they allow their employees to take cash in the form of tips from the table. All right, So they'll still have these tip jars in some of these places. So they're basically they're saying, you can give cash to our employees, but you're not giving cash to us. Um, which shows you, I mean, there's this huge, there's a big corporate element. And, and so not only corporate, but actually a lot of sort of, there's actually a kind of an alliance forming especially for example in places like London where I was based for quite a long time between a certain part of the upper income small and medium sized business community and these me- these mega corporates so a lot of these kind of bougie sort of coffee shops and like kind of slightly more upper end places have basically said to their customers we if you want to do business with us you have to do business with big tech and big finance right This is what a cashless store is. This is what a cashless coffee shop is. They're basically saying, we won't interact with you unless you use the big tech systems, right? Right. Um, And they are essentially now becoming a kind of front line via which, you know, Apple Pay and these things extend into society, right? And so there's a story now that's coming out of players like Apple and, you know, these these big digital systems they say, oh, well, you know, our systems are helping these small businesses to, you know, cut, cut costs and stuff. And you say, well, fine, maybe they marginally might cut some costs for some people, but the overarching effects that you're getting ever more powerful. Exactly. Right? You're becoming, right. uh, you know, unavoidable infrastructure that everybody has to always use, which means that every single local interaction has to go through a distant corporation.
1: There is in the US a sector that charges less if you pay cash, and that's nail salons. If you pay cash, you get 10% off across the board because then they don't have to report it.
2: There's a lot of there's a lot of variation actually when you speak to small businesses about what they actually prefer. Right. Um there are some who are very pro-cash and some who have actually could become quite anti-cash, right? So there's a lot of variation in, in that uh that sector. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier around there's a lot of the sort of the sort of sanctimonious kind of stuff around from anti-cash campaigners where they'll say stuff like well it's because people are trying to get around the tax system and so on but then again you'll often see that those those heavily cash-based businesses are often run by by you know migrants who don't often feel included in society right. and stuff so there's not there's not these like this idea that everybody should be like willingly submitting themselves to the IRS you know to be, be observed constantly is like you know a very problematic belief.
0: Yeah, right. I also wonder about like crap robots as well, because you talked about like the doom loop of miscategorization, right? Like if if all this sort of spending payments data, uh, they're building sort of a profile on you. The ultimate aim is about predicting you um, or what kind of person you are. It's like through no fault of your own, potentially, you could end up in um, sort of being categorized or mislabeled, right? Yeah.
3: Or, or labeled, right? You don't necessarily have to be mislabeled. I mean, I know. Well you're like, getting
0: labeled anyway, right? That's, right. That's, that's right. the issue.
3: There's been, you know, for example, a lot of issues with PayPal and, you know, um, Palestinian, you know, account. Or if you, you know, send money to certain people causes, or whatnot. Yeah. yeah, causes. I mean, just even like sending money to family, you know, and, and then they're like, why has my account been completely canceled yeah. yeah
2: and paypal paypal was one of the ones that was at the forefront of automation of say fraud detection and actually palantir which is one of the most
3: uh-huh.
2: at least in some ways notorious data surveillance company in, in the us um and palantir comes out of paypal right so so palantir is basically a national security um surveillance type of operation Um, They basically hire themselves out to governments and corporations to do forms of essentially um, surveillance consulting. And Palantir came out of a team from PayPal who were basically trying to automate fraud detection, right? And the reason that, that companies want to automate these things is they operate at such massive scale to hire people to do that manually is just way too much work for them. So they just automate, right? So on average, they don't really care if their system makes a mistake, you know, five to 10% of the time, right? Or even 15% of the time, they don't really care because on net they're saving money from that. They're making money at scale. They don't care about the individual cases. And this is what AI is brilliant for, right? If you are sort of doing, you know, generalization at scale, it's more It's more cost effective for a company to have a sort of like robot system that does it than to actually hire, you know, a highly qualified kind of Sherlock Holmes type person to say, you know, what's the situation here? So for them, they don't really care if you get shafted as long as on average, they're making more money. So, you know, a lot of these AI systems, that's the politics behind it. Um, and this is why I think, you know, and, and in some ways, you know, it's important to note that there's, there's no there's no reason why an AI system can't at certain points make a better assessment than some human banker. I mean, I'm from South Africa where for a long time human bankers in South African banks were often very incredibly racist and you know, if a black person approached they'd say no, you don't get a loan because I don't like the way you look, you know. Hypothetically an AI algorithm might be in a certain situation less bigoted. You don't know, right? but it could also be incompetent and it could also be trained on data that's racist, right? Mm-hmm. So it has to have a kind of like generic kind of like racist racism in it, right? This is a, there's a lot of critique around AI that's, that's about looking at this kind of stuff. But, the, but I think that the broader point to, to, to take away is that regardless of whether the AI systems are making better or worse decisions, the reason why they're being pushed is because they allow for large scale automation that's, that's the reason why companies use them. They're not really like that concerned about do they actually make better decisions or not.
0: Yeah, as a, as a side question, uh, was reading the book, I sort of had, I mean, this is pie in the sky kind of stuff. But, you know, I think part of the, um, uh, some of the sort of Marxist uh, perspective on capitalism is that, it is sort of laying the groundwork for the communism to come, right? And so in some respects, yeah. you know, this fully automated um, corporate capitalism, it, you know, is it theoretically possible to repurpose the entire system to create fully automated luxury communism? Or is it just like, the, you know, um, does it fit with that sort of cybernetic kind of planning yeah. ideal? Or does it—is it just not compatible with that?
2: Yeah, you, you struck up on a very problematic elements in some parts of the left-wing, um, approach, right? Which is that there is this left-wing accelerationist tradition, which basically says, you know, let capitalism run and do what it does, which is to scale, automate, formalize everything into these vast structures. And then we can kind of socialize that once it's sort of done. That's a very crude way of basically putting, putting that argument out.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: but there are, yeah, there are elements of, sort of certain left intelligentsia who kind of like think that they're often sort of like part of the more like bougie cosmopolitan urban left intelligentsia because actually they're quite like some of the kind of like gentrification processes. Um, and they're part of a certain social class often, which actually they don't they don't really mind the aesthetics of formalized capitalism. And when I say formalized, I mean, when you think about an informal economy, which is what human beings have had for like you know most of human history it's like you have individual human beings who interact with each other right and they and they make deals and stuff and there's like forms of you know contact and friction and sort of like rough edges everywhere formalization is when essentially you have these institutions that go in and intermediate everything right and it gives a totally different feel to a society right when people are talking about you know, if a person from like Finland or like uh, Sweden arrives in a place like, you know, Zimbabwe, where my family are from, the first thing they're going to notice is the lack of formalization. If people are like doing deals randomly without some kind of like third party intermediation. That's what gives the feeling of a developing country. Whereas in a very highly formalized economy is basically human beings don't interact directly all right, because they always these institutions between them, right? And that's really what scaling and automation does. It automa- It sort of formalizes and, and, and creates these vast institutional structures through everything. And in some parts of the left-wing imagination, that's imagined then to be the thing that you try to then sort of socialize into a kind of like a vast luxury, you know, uh, utopia, um, which to me just seems like, totally unhinged um
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: i mean it's hypothetically possible but it also feels like a big, big kind of like cop-out um i'm not saying there aren't forms of truth to that i'm not saying that that the you know that the changing nature of a society's production can't lead to new political formations but um a lot of the sort of left accelerationist stuff to me feels very dubious
1: it's also highly premature there isn't the kind of movement yeah. that would take over these mega institutions and socialize them and make them co-ops that's just not yeah a political possibility of the moment
2: i mean i could imagine a situation in which the accelerating sort of corporate systems creates a huge amount of burnout because essentially they're operating through our bodies right so 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 like the kind of like frenetic increase in speed in the society, I mean, we've already seeing it right now, and I'm, I'm sure you guys talk about this kind of stuff, with increase in mental health type issues, the fact that there's all this sort of sense of like endless change and so on. You know, I think that could actually, one of the sort of greatest threats to a capitalist system is, is not so much that every the, the socialists are gonna rise up and, and, and socialize, you know, Google, it's, it's probably it's probably more that Google will burn through its human material aka us w- w- although these systems will, will, will kind of just like burn everybody out and there'll be like mass apathy mm-hmm. right and that's that's probably maybe then at that point people then say oh, you know what I actually like just lost belief in any in, in any of this and uh, I might
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and it's really interesting actually that idea that uh this sort of uh formalized, Uh, way that economies work and that you start sort of separating people. You do sort of outline it, I guess, in the conclusion of your book, but just that idea that because of you sort of removing human interaction through automation, that that's where you create Mm -hmm. the, you know, mental health problems and isolation and, and, and through that process, and because finance is so pervasive and sort of invisible that you get these rise of like, yeah people, like you said, burning out, but also the, the, the I guess the, rather than the burnout, Hey, let's make a better world. Oftentimes it's like, I'm confused and angry and pissed off. And, and that, that's where you get some of the conspiracy theory stuff, right? Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the, just one, of the, one last thing to maybe say, which is something I confront a lot in, in this is that there's a kind of a mythology among lots of the sort of, Tech utopians that technology is used to increase leisure. All right, this idea that oh well, something's more convenient, therefore you got more more leisure time, right? Which is which is just not true. I mean, what technology is used for in a capitalist system is to expand production, right? right? So every so so, so I mean, the, the easiest way to see this is to, be, to say like, you know, if, if I if I lived one kilometer away from you know the stream, um, and I, I'm I'm used to to say work, walking for half an hour to get to the stream, and then suddenly a car arrives, and suddenly it takes me you know five minutes to get there. I mean, h- hypothetically, I've saved let's say twenty five minutes, right? And we could leave it there. It's like, okay, cool. There's your there's your leisure saving. That we've sort of saved time. But what really happens in a capitalist system is that suddenly the system expands and suddenly you'll be pushed 10 kilometers away from the river, right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to live further away because now the system has a way to expand, right? So technology is used to expand the system. It's never used to just stay static and increase time, right? right? So all this, this rhetoric around convenience, which is always used to promote these technologies, is just, it's just bullshit, right? Because everybody's, doing way more stuff than they previously used to do. So it's a little bit like being on a kind of like accelerating treadmill where you basically um, having to run faster and faster. So, and if you, if you don't adopt the technology in relative terms, you feel like you're being left behind. Yeah. Right? And this is what the stuff the psychology going on. And a lot of the stuff is a lot of people feel like if they don't adopt the technologies, they're going to be kind of like shafted. It's not really, it's not really that they want to do it. Is that the sort of systemic change is sort of forcing them to do it,
1: right? Yeah. And it is because other, you know, the system starts to operate differently, and you're out of sync.
2: Yeah, exactly. Out of sync is a very good phrase for this because basically, if you end up out of sync, you'll you'll find yourself relatively um, compromised, especially as the baseline infrastructure of the society changes. Yeah. Right. So this is what well, this is what's happening right now with the cash thing. What's what the objective of the digital payments industry, it's become unassailable infrastructure that you can't operate without, right? Right now, there is this other option. But and, and once they reach that point, if they manage to, of becoming total infrastructure, then at some point, the person who says, hey, I want to use cash, will just be laughed at. Be like, you've, right. you've been, you're out of sync. Let's just, just leave, right? And that's right. the situation you don't want to end up in because you've got to tr- maintain that, that counter power. Yeah, you
1: can't get often in the US anyway you can't get a credit har- card unless you have a credit history because you have another credit card you have to be in the system
0: yeah, yeah. and so and so you can see why that some of this crypto stuff sort of came about because you had the 2008 crisis and then um you have this sort of like complete lack of trust in the financial institution at that point right Um, if it didn't exist before. And crypto uh, uh, sold itself in some ways as an answer out of this. Yeah, sure, Uh, sure, sure. I mean-
1: It's part of that whole idea that you don't, which the right wing, an element of the right wing espouses that the government is bad rather than our government is bad and should be changed. And so the idea is liberation means no regulation which is a real problem, but people don't think through that.
2: Yeah, I mean, crypto is a big a big topic. I mean, one thing I will say, irrespective of libertarian, conservative libertarian viewpoints, mm-hmm. for the vast majority of people involved in crypto, that's not really why they're there. Um, the reason why many people are there is that it's a kind of a speculative carnival. Right. Right. So, the, so 90% of people, probably 95% of people involved in the crypto world are really actually not right-wing libertarians. The right-wing libertarians form almost the ideological kind of like vanguard or kind of core. that they, they kind of produce the marketing material essentially, mm. right? But in reality, they're, they're a comparatively small part of the crypto community. Um, the vast majority of people... If I was giving kind of like meta analysis, I might say, you know, Liam, you said sort of a, redu- a loss of trust in the banking sector. I'm, I'm not even sure that's really the main story. I think what's often going on is people, especially men, searching for a kind of like heroic narrative um, through speculation. And, there's, and, and in history, there's been many, many examples where speculation is presented as a kind of heroic act, you know, where you can sort of save your Yourself and you know be a kind of like um, become self-sufficient and financially independent and stuff and even in the UK with like you know Margaret Thatcher, there's a lot of this idea of unleash speculation in the housing market and becomes independent through this right. you know, the capital gains rises, so it's actually quite a long tradition of this idea of empowerment through speculation and it's often particularly pushed into sort of more marginalized communities where there's this idea that you can sort of gamble your way um, out of your sort of situation. Um, so there's a very, very big element of that in the crypto world. Um, it's just that rather than, you know, say the real estate market being used as a sort of like marketing pitch, there's a kind of like an anti-state sort of libertarian message that's the sort of the, you know, sparkle or the kind of like the, the, the sort of pitch in the, in the process. It's right. also
1: easy money. I, mean, I know working class people bought it because it seems easy and it goes up, and it's so exciting.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 it's you know, it's got this idea of, um, and the reason why I use the word carnival is that, you know, I come from an anthropology background, and, and in anthropology, there's lots of this sort of study of carnivals and what they do in a society. Mm. You know, why do we have carnivals? And often mm-hmm. often a carnival is more than just a sort of you know a sort of celebration or a party it's often a kind of political thing where people get to temporarily escape their situation they get to temporarily pretend that they're a king pretend that they're a woman pretend that there's some you know somebody something that they're traditionally not allowed to be seen as right? mm-hmm. Um and the, the carnival provides this kind of space for that and in many ways the crypto world has a very strong carnivalesque element to it and that people it allows people to act out fantasies of, of escape and fantasies of, of heroic action, despite the fact that what they're actually doing is using US dollars to buy something and then trying to resell that thing for US dollars. There's not, there's not, <laughs> there's not actually an attempt to escape the monetary system. There's an attempt to try and get rich enough to then be able to sort of not have to work. Mm. That's, that's right. what's really um, going on often. But of course, there's then also the dangerous, one of the most dangerous elements of this, though, is that in the process of that carnival happening, because the libertarian right has kind of almost like a monopoly on the sort of story, a lot of people who are getting drawn into the carnival who actually might be quite left-leaning and stuff are get a sort of like through osmosis internalizing a lot of libertarian right-wing talking points, right? Pro-austerity, you know, um, being very, very anti any form of of state um, regulation, regardless of what it is, you know? Um, and there's a lot of 16-, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds who are kind of being their first exposure to monetary thinking comes from quite far-right um, yeah. uh, theorists. And that, to me, is a, is a very, very big problem in, in this this uh, situation.
1: Well, there's a kind of veneration of the rich, at least in in the United States. So the idea that I'm, it's money, it's money. Look at Trump, that's I'm rich is one of his biggest selling points.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that. Well, the the the, 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 the respect for hierarchy or the kind of like this this idea that somehow if you've managed to accumulate a large number of the tokens within the monetary system, it must mean you've done it through some kind of right. skill rather than a position of power
1: exactly or a position of privilege in the first place yeah that's exactly. being mitigated somewhat as elon musk fucks up everything
2: <laughs> yeah the, the the cult of the billionaire has taken a, a hit in the last uh half Yes. Yeah,
0: I read this fascinating thing. I I don't know if it's true, but someone supposedly from SpaceX just saying that the whole point was that there was an entourage around him at all times to sort of manage him because he's the guy who supplied the money. So they just had to sort of contain him so that everything could just keep going. And I, you know, having worked in a sort of similar situation in the past, I can believe that to be true. But you know, that's yeah. just my prejudice maybe leaking through. But um, yeah, we've come up to the to the hour here. I don't know if you want to go in any longer or whether we should just get to solve sort of it.
2: I can do another, you know, 15 minutes or so. Um, okay. One one thing to say on the crypto stuff though is is, is I think we should be careful of, you know, I, I've noticed many people in, in, especially in left-wing kind of communities being quite dismissive of of um, crypto speculation, but it's undeniable that it's tapping into something that feels very important to many, many people people yes right um so while it's important to to critique the narrative and the the practices there's actually a lot of um it's tapping into something some some need people have right people wanting a sense of meaning wanting a sense of there's some kind of direction in the global economy and this even if there's a bunch of cognitive dissonance in the process where where they kind of recognize that it's well, in reality, what's going on here is that I'm actually just speculating to try and make more U.S. dollars. They, the, the sort of it's, it's, the fantasy element is quite important. The sort of very. sense of like, well, this is going to lead to some new society, at least at some vague level. Um, I think is actually quite an important thing for many people, uh, and there's a very right. big industry that's now sort of capitalizing off that, right? Which is what all these players like FTX, for example, which has just been, you know, that's that's, a, that's an industry that's that's Massively benefiting from this kind of carnivalesque um, sort of uh, frenzy going on,
0: yeah. And Adam Curtis had a whole thing about exactly that, observing that um, that need for something, you know, a better world. Surprise, surprise. And uh, right. that, that you know, you you need to have a good story. Uh, you need to have something that people can cling on to and that that can believe in it. And it can't just sort of be a scam like NFTs are. It needs to, to manifest. Of,
2: there's a lot of stuff to, to, that can be said here, but one of the first things is that in traditional, like, you know, if you're involved in sort of like on the ground, sort of, let's say, more like left-leaning community activism, it's often very draining and hard. Mm. You know, it's like, Lots of personal sacrifice that many activists go through. They don't make much money. It's it's like you can go, you know, uh, live on the bread line trying to be a kind of sort of political activist often. Um, and it's exhausting. And often it feels like you, you're getting nowhere, right? And actually, one of the things that, that the crypto world's managed to do very, very successfully is – to, it's essentially tapping into a speculative get-rich mentality whilst coating it with this kind of political narrative, which becomes very, very enticing for somebody who might, for example, be exhausted during the day after working, who's then like, well, I I don't have time to be, you know, going to my local, you know, meeting around, or you know, union meeting or something, but maybe I can, um, you know, engage in a sort of like fantasy revolution on the side. Um, and that's a, that's a very, very important aspect of it. And also um, a, another big element that, that many people um, during the sort of the pandemic and stuff were getting pushed so far into the digital realm that they almost lost the sense that you can do activism in the physical realm, that, you, that there is a such thing as politics on the ground beyond the computer, mm-hmm. right? And many people now imagine that politics is on the computer. And and crypto is a very good example of this. Like it almost entirely exists in the cyber realm. If you walk out onto the streets, for example, of wherever you are, I pretty much guarantee you're not gonna see any evidence of the crypto world. It's not, it doesn't exist as an actual system for people using doing exchange, for example. But it's a huge thing in the digital world, right? And people imagining that there's this whole digital revolution going on within this kind of like encapsulated space. Um, And I've sort of almost like forgotten that there's such a thing as organizing outside
0: of that space. (laughs) Yes, great point. Towards the end of the book, obviously, with the critique of the crypto stuff, there potentially are some, not necessarily solutions, but some things that might help in that space, right? Like besides the... everything you just said you know which is basically about meaning right that that's the sort of fundamental thing regardless of the tech there's a sort of meaning and there's a story and there's a sort of politics that drives all of this sort of stuff like mm-hmm. there was a few things you mentioned is it was it decode like a citizen owned digital tech thing
2: yeah i mean there's obviously there's always forms of counterpower being being um designed in any situation right so i'm I don't want to be absolutist about all this to say there's there's no positive digital activism and stuff going on. There's, there's lots of there's lots of stuff happening which is um, trying to form alternative systems, um, and you know often when I'm thinking about alternatives, I'm not I'm not imagining a whole scale a, a wholesale change of everything. Right? I'm often imagining how do you balance off systems with counter power. A lot of my argumentation around cash. It's not because I'm romantic about the cash system, as somehow being, I want the whole world to always be using cash. It's it's I I recognize its importance in a particular context, to, right? Right. So it's about a balance of power. And and that's that to me is important. That's why you promote cash. It's not because you want everybody to be using no, that. Because empire, you right? love cash. All right. Yeah. There are there are some people who are like that who get romantic about the banknotes and stuff, right? But um, and I think it's quite similar for all these types of alternative economic models, you know, these sort of alternative platforms and things. So for example, right now, like Mastodon would be considered an alternative to Twitter. Um, Mastodon is going to struggle, right? Because it doesn't have the, it doesn't operate according to the standard you know, grooves of the capitalist system, which means it won't get any funding. It won't be able to scale as fast and so on. But I think, the reason why that stuff's important is you're trying to create that at least partial forms of counterpower, right? Yeah. Um, and that's very, very important because as soon as you give up on that activity, that's when you have those type of t- total takeovers.
1: I do think it's interesting, though, in spite of the di- digital world, some of the biggest liberatory forces that are being organized, like Iran... The protest against the dictatorship of the religious theocracy of Iran or in the United States, the most active and class conscious thing we have is a huge tide of union organizing, which is very physical and very real and a kind of antidote to this digitized, individualized world of people in front of their own computer.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I really believe there could be a strong comeback, actually, of of this. I mean, we we live under this ideology that says everything will be ever more um, digitized, ever more automated, ever more fast and scaled, and which is basically a corporate ideology because that's what Amazon likes. Yes, right. right. Um, Amazon, to, in, in the worldview of the inhuman entity that is Amazon, that is a utopia, right? which then seeps into the culture through various processes as, as, as what you're supposed to desire. And every politician in the world right now will pay lip service to this when they're talking about digital transformation. they like, oh, say, yes, we have to do digital transformation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're basically just, just like parroting a type of ideology. But the, in the meantime, human beings who are not an inhuman entity like Amazon – Will feel that in their bodies. They're like, this makes me feel sick, terrible, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I'm actually going to like, um, th- th- there'll be these I feel like almost natural reactions that that emerge, despite the fact that they will go against that dominant, um sort of uh, normative idea of what you're supposed to do. And so I'm I'm sure that we'll, we'll see many forms of people pulling back and doing new interesting creative things.
0: Yeah, I I was wondering in terms of that idea of a a counter uh, to this uh leap or you know this drive towards automation can you mess with the data like I was thinking if I was hanging out uh if I was just hanging out with a bunch of like super rich people and I suddenly got their telephone numbers would that like affect my credit score or ver- vice versa <laughs> if I was <laughs> yeah, hanging out I mean, with a lot of like under you know uh underserved sort of underprivileged people and they don't have any money and I put their phone numbers in in my phone yeah. as, you, know, <laughs> you're, you you're, know you're
2: a current you're you're right now channeling the kind of hacker mentality, which is like, let me work out the hidden codes behind the system so that I can then subvert them in some kind of way. Yeah. Right. And that's, of course, there's always fascinating things you can do as a hacker mentality. You can say, oh, well, I can game the system. I can screw it using its own rules. Um, And I'm sure right now there's a lot of people doing that. My first book, which is The Heretics Guide to Global Finance, which came out in 2013, was all about kind of hacker approaches to financial activism Right? So right. there's more there's more kind of tactical sort of small scale things you can do mm-hmm. um which is always a great zone of creativity so yeah yes. i mean in the, the digital realm there's a lot of like interesting things that people i'm sure are doing right now
0: yeah it is interesting the how the I- ideology maybe uh, the economic model, the trickle-down economics doesn't work, but ideology does, right? So that yes, it it, it, does. Per- it permeates our sort of culture and the, the sort of fintech and the tech stuff. It's like we're disruptors, but, you know, as you make out in your book, they're ultimately, they're, they're not disruptors, they just ultimately cozy up to the yeah. existing power structures.
2: And I, and I guess, you know, in sort of like, kind of like Marxist sort of traditions, you know, people like Gramsci and stuff will be talking about cultural hegemony, Many, yes, this, this way that the interests of elite classes kind of get absorbed or sort of slowly like internalized by people who don't actually benefit from that, and you, I see that all the time in debates around, for example, the cash system. All these people who actually you expect to be normally quite critical sort of parroting basically these kind of big tech lines back at me. It's like, well, you know, we, we all we desire is convenience, and you know, this is this, just this, 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 so some kind of like virtue in society to become dependent upon some mega, you know, corporate entity. Um, There's a lot of that going on and it's very, very hard for people to often get enough distance, especially when it comes to the monetary system, because many people have already poor understandings of monetary systems. So when you're trying to show those politics, it's very, very difficult. Um, But yeah, I think there's often an internal tension going on in people where they, at some level they realize that they're getting entrapped. Um, right. But because it's sort of tapping into a sort of short-term part of themselves, um, and there's this whole ideology and hegemony around it, they will go along with it, even though at some level most people are aware that it's probably detrimental to them and their long-term well-being or their long-term. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, they and, s- then,
1: and then they s- say that if you repeat anything long enough, people think it's the truth, and that is repeated everywhere.
0: Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Liam. Yeah, it's just interesting as well, like that whole idea of letting the market decide. You make the point in the in the book that because we're all in this sort of interconnected uh, network um, through, through money, through finance, that there's these nodes in the network that have more influence than others. So when people say let the market decide, it's like, well, you know, the market isn't... Let some the corporate sort of... <laughs> oligopoly decide. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. And just uh, maybe this is a sort of fun, funny thing to end on. I thought your stuff uh, right at the beginning of the book about skyscrapers. Um the taller the building is, the less down to earth a mindset you must have. And the <laughs> and, and, and the toilets up there. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that. It just didn't make me Yeah chuckle. sure,
2: sure. Um I mean well I used to work in high finance. Uh, I experienced skyscrapers and stuff, you know. Um, but basically I was sort of saying that um the mentality of uh, like high finance, corporate finance, but I mean, I'd say it's it's, it's it applies to corporations more generally is that yeah, the, the, the bigger you're building, the more abstracted you are because you're essentially operating at scale. Right. right. And when you're operating at scale, your intuition is always, you're, you're kind of disassociated from what's going on below. It's just kind of like bombing at a distance type of mentality. It's like, you know, millions of people are going to be affected by something that I do, but like, I don't really know who they are. They just appear to me as, 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 as you know, numbers on a spreadsheet. Um. And yeah, this this what then leads to this, this sort of fetishization of automation, because it's like, well, I you know, I I need to process all these sort of like human beings who don't mean anything mean anything to me um through these automated systems. But what I was talking about in in the case of this um um kind of anecdote there was that I was talking about the Commerce Bank Tower in uh, Frankfurt, which is you know it's the biggest bank in in, the, in Germany, Commerce Bank. But there's this kind of like infamous. Uh, picture from the Commerce Bank Tower, which is of the the men's urinals, right, which are up on like the 30th floor. They kind of like look out over the city. So (laughs) There's like, you know, these sort of like bankers who are kind of like pissing into there, they're kind of like looking down in the city. And I guess what I was sort of saying is that actually many of these human beings in these super large scale institutions, you know, when, when they leave those buildings, they're actually ordinary human beings. They've got their hopes and their dreams and their their dog and their sort of friendship groups. And a a lot of the stuff inside those buildings would be meaningless to them unless they had some human scale community to go to. Right. right? They can't, they can't maintain the desire and hope to, to carry on being in that space unless they have some other thing. Yes. Um but with, once they, once you're sort of within the context of these super large scale organizations, you will find yourself doing things that are basically um kind of your your being kind of gets calibrated by the needs of that of that of that large scale institution um which is why actually it's often and maybe this is slightly abstract but I'll start to think about corporations as being kind of like slightly inhuman entities that happen to have human beings that sort of like bring them to life
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely and and I think um. You know uh in in the shard in london there's a public bar that you know you can go up however many floors that is quite close to the top and then similarly they have a toilet that looks out and so you can go for a piss uh, whilst that illusion of like looking over london's like i'm pissing on all the plebs you know and it's just like there is there is (laughs) there is that sort of vibe of like a little power trip and i wonder to what degree that was sort of uh
1: Engineered. <laughs> uh, engineered,
0: like, oh, this makes yeah. me feel powerful and like. Bleh, bleh, well, and also, it's very, very obvious when you
2: hang around the kind of wealthy elite of the corporate sectors that they're very unhappy, right? And often what's happened is that the person gets so disassociated, and I don't know if this is the right word, but they're kind of so detached from the kind of the ground level Is that often once once you kind of detach a human being from these sort of more ground level things, you kind of the only thing you start to get as a reward is, say, like accumulating more money. You see this with people like Trump quite a lot. I mean, I don't know if this is the right, right analysis, but it's almost like he doesn't actually really have, you know, friends, for example. No, the, and the his only, wife
1: doesn't like him. You
2: yeah, know. the only real thing he has is, is, this, is this ever more of this kind of accumulation impulse. And in a way, it's quite sort of sad. And it actually comes across a lot in um, if you hang out at these like, Sort of banker parties and stuff—they're really shit, you know. It's, they're not—they're not, they're not fun at all. Um, whereas, right. of course, if you go to a, 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 a often much poorer communities, the parties are way better, right? Because there's actually a lot more sort of horizontal solidarity going on and stuff, right? Whereas a lot of there's quite a lot of sadness in the corporate sector among people who've been kind of like over many years kind of like cut off from. Yeah, what, well,
1: the crucial factor of mental health is connection.
2: And so they're in trouble. Yeah. So it's a big thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Well, the the connection thing is probably a good place to um, end it. because I did think that was a really good bit, actually, the sort of that, that, well, throughout the book, actually, there's just a lot of, uh, like you said, there's that anthropological lens, but a sort of very human, um, empathetic sort of way of wrapping up uh, uh, certain observations and that, that idea that, you know, this particular sort of corporate environment is, uh, sort of estranging people from one another. Um, you know, it kind of, again, it bleeds all the way down, right. This whole sort of corporate capitalism stuff just seems to, um, it, it makes lots of stuff, but it doesn't make many people, uh, feel particularly great i guess right um, yeah yeah which is probably a really sort of lame way to uh, wrap everything up i think you say yeah. things a lot better and well, I, uh, you well, know, maybe,
2: maybe maybe the way to, to say it is i think you know i i wouldn't be surprised within 10 years if a lot a lot more people it suddenly so that sort of starts to dawn on them you know we we go through the motions of talking about we want ever more stuff and stuff but i think it's becoming that that gets That story gets ever thinner over time, right? Because Uh in the 1950s, if I go to somebody who's got comparatively low amounts of stuff and I say, hey, think about, you know, the metaverse and all these things, in relative terms, that's going to seem very impressive, the person might be like, "Wow, that's exciting, isn't it? You know, flying cars, da 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 da." You know, mm-hmm. but if you go to somebody now and you say that, they're kind of like, eh.
1: "Yeah,
2: it's true." A lot <laughs> of interesting, people. yeah, I guess so. And I think there's a kind of a, a sort of like a there's a there's a curve. It's, it's, it's sort of like tailing off people's excitement. There's there's kind of like limits to how much you can get a person excited about like you know living in the digital world as a kind of virtual avatar, for example.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the Musk thing, again, you return to that. It's like if that's evident of how uh, these people are going to run these uh, environments, whether they're just you know social media companies or some VR thing we're going to live in, it's fucking terrifying, isn't it? There's yeah, so it sort sure of is. no accountability. Or-
2: so so the, the hopeful note is
0: that I think
2: these systems are getting, although they're getting more dystopian and potentially authoritarian, that's a very negative thing, they're also kind of getting more boring to many people.
1: Yeah, and actually, and that alienating. could
2: be that could be the and yeah, an alienating and um, this burnout and stuff. It's all associated with this kind of things, and I, and I think that could actually lead to new forms of thinking as people realize that you know, and and the, a, the, a lot of the dropping of maybe the sort of very you know kitsch cliched sort of like more is always better and every every technology is like a wonderful improvement on life, etc. Um, mm. Might become more and more tenuous over time. I don't know.
1: That's a very good place to end, I think.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. That was great.
1: Thank you. Thank you
3: so much.
0: A massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Alex Placito, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Jennifer Cox, Rebecca Johns, Seamus O'Connell, and Sheena Bilmes.
1: If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to capitalism hits home if you enjoy it's not just in your head
0: and you can hear more from harriet on her radio show called Date. it's on wednesday afternoons and in the wbai archives